Hey, welcome to Spotlight. This is a special edition of The Move where we highlight some people that we've come across whose work we really want you to know and understand. Well, Aisha, uh, here we are again, you know, having gone through our list of all these wonderful recordings we have yep. and <laughs> now being able to say, oh boy, here's another one we can kind of put out again uh, to people. Yeah, here's and, another one to highlight. <laughs> yeah, and this is one with Holly Harrell. I know you remember it. It was a really wonderful conversation. Mm-hmm. And again, she was someone I first met many years ago when she was a student, and now I think she's... Uh, one of my teachers, so actually really <laughs> it's the way things should work in the world, right? That's incredible. I love that. Yeah, but in particular, you know, she uh, does a lot of work around working in higher education mm-hmm. and, you know, in community groups also, but a lot in higher education about really expanding the way they think about inclusion mm-hmm. and how they go about, you know, designing ways to create more people in these kind of really diverse communities that universities are to actually be involved in what's going on. And today, we're so excited to hear some more about her work at Brown. Thank you so much for joining us today, Holly. Thanks it's for having really, me. It's really good. So we actually wanted to have this conversation with you because you've had so many different experiences mm-hmm. of in different kinds of, both from working at community levels to working at higher education institutions, are really thinking about and experience around public engagement. You know, the latest set of work that I'm doing, which is focused on this notion of anchor institutions. So Mm. what tends to get sort of talked about in the anchor institution conversation are eds and meds. Yes. But Mm -hmm. I mentioned a moment ago, you can actually have uh, a community arts, uh, a museum, Mm. libraries, They're like nine or ten different types, stadiums. Mm. Um, so think large nonprofit, mm. right? Large right. nonprofit. And so in the last three or four years in my work, I've been focused on actually universities and colleges, eds and meds, around this notion of them being institutional citizens in a city. Mm. Right. Right. Not just individual residents and people. But how do we engage the largest citizens as a group in change for good, public good? Mm-hmm. Right. And so I say that because a lot of times what happens in those processes is that the decisions have already been determined. When this large institution is saying, okay, we're gonna engage, they've already made up their minds. Mm-hmm. Because of uh, lots of times, it's not an excuse, sort of how they're constructed, right? Mm. Right. Big institutions, lots of layers, lots of moving parts, um, timelines. But decisions and the framing has already happened. Mm. And then they come to the table and say, we want to talk to the community. And this is especially in the context of if there is tension between the community (laughs) and a college. Or university, right. right? Then they're more likely to frame it up front. Oh goodness, yes. It's a way of controlling. Absolutely, yeah. controlling the conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And more recently, I've been talking about some of the guidance that I've been providing to leaders at uh, campus. Leaders is don't reframe, right? Mm-hmm. If you come to the table, be an honest broker. If the community, if there's tension and difficulty, 
and discomfort don't immediately work to reframe what the community is saying. Mm. Sit with that discomfort, right? And let's see if you can actually sort of work through it. But typically what happens is, well, let's reframe it. Mm. And what I've learned throughout my work is that the community is actually mm. bringing this tension up. And it's, a lot of times it's historical tension and they're using it as a boundary, right? They're setting ways in which we should talk, right? So it was important for the institution to sort of acknowledge that or institutions to acknowledge that and say, okay, mm. all right, this is a boundary setting around trust, honesty, um, other things that we need to acknowledge and work with mm. instead of trying to immediately push it to the side or recast it as something else. Mm. Right. So, How do you build an institution's resilience for tension though, right? Because like, yeah. so when you yeah. were talking about reframing as a sort of defense mechanism mm -hmm. on the part of these massive schools and other public institutions, I'm thinking of at the very individual level, this sort of like hyper-medication generation that we're in, yeah. even on a personal level. Mm -hmm. And then you start expanding that and adding sort of layers to it, like you were saying, and now you have this massive public institution. And it, it's not really surprising that the same problem exists yeah. at the institutional level, except for that medication turns into a, just a reframing of the problem. Right. And so how, you know, like I, I go to therapy, right? What does an institution do? Like, how do you build resilience for tension? Right. The short answer is I think we are we are working to create that. I don't mm -hmm. think that it's been built yet. Yeah. We are actually in a new era. We're staying in the context of colleges and universities where lots of institutions, including the one that we're in right now, right. <laughs> are looking at their historical past and facing some very difficult sort of nuanced understandings of how this institution has come to be, mm -hmm. right? Now, sort of put that to the side, that is actually taking on that work is getting at root causes as opposed to what has been done in the past, typically is treat, trying to treat symptoms. Mm. So universities and colleges, because they're big, because they've gotten you know, research dollars or donors mm. or there is an interest to um, explore a particular conversation, um, they'll move on it very, very quickly, mm -hmm. right? We're treating a symptom. So they attempt to treat the symptom, tension arises, we don't want to deal with the root <laughs> cause. We make the root cause go away. Yeah. And we continue to focus on treating symptoms and put a nice, neat little bow. Yeah. And then five years, 10 years, 15 years later, yeah. we are back at it again. We're back at it again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're back at it again. Yeah. So I think what we're doing, we're sort of entering into not only colleges and universities, but the nation in general. We're entering into a time where it's, I think we need to have some more honest conversations that mm. are messy, that don't make you feel good, mm. and will require a new set of skills around dialogue mm. and approach yeah. to move us forward. Listen, yeah. you know, I'm wondering though, do you think 
these institutions, so you talk about anchor institutions yeah. and their role in citizenship. I'd say sometimes that I think actually because of that role, not just anchor institutions, but I think any institution that has an obligation to the public has this role, but it may be particularly so with anchor institutions, that they actually have some responsibility to build the public's muscle for democracy. But in your work, do people actually see themselves as serving democratic principles? That that's really a role for them? Or is that just like, you know, we do these things because they're required of us in order to be good neighbors to get done what we need to get done? I think this is a setup question. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a setup. I think it is very much the second. There are some few institutions who have sort of harkened down this road of we are going to sit shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. um, with the community. Mm-hmm. And we're in for the for the long haul. And this typically comes because it's a special type of leadership, hmm. you know, that's leading the campus. And that person, to your point earlier, that person tends to sort of have a makeup of resiliency, hmm. right? Hmm. Someone has to absorb the shock hmm. of we're in it for the long haul. Hmm. We're going to work to strengthen the d- democracy of our space, mm. and we're present and engaged in that space, right? If you don't have a strong leader mm. who sort of comes to the role of leading the campus or a group of that thinking sort of in the campus leadership, then it becomes just in principle. Mm. Because someone has to absorb the shock of the, we're not doing it like we used to. We're, we are going to go into sort of uncharted territories that we haven't done before. So I think by and large, in principle, they say it, but to get into the work of it can be so tense that most large institutions will shy away from it until mm. they absolutely don't have an out. So again, you know, I'm, you know how does someone you know, manage that tension. Yeah. You know, if you have a good leadership around you, then that kind of, you know, puts some wind to your back. Or, yeah. Is that the right phrase? Wind to your back or something? Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about yeah. sun on your soul? <laughs> <laughs> both. You, need, you actually need both. <laughs> you need both. I want a leader that puts sun on my, my soul. soul. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Isn't that nice? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, but if you don't have that, you know, or if you do have it, you still have to kind of, you're still caught in the, in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so I can't speak to that directly because, you know, I spent six years at Brown University as the director of education outreach. So I have to sort mm-hmm. of go back in order to get to move forward. So Brown was the first institution to actually, under the direction of Ruth Simmons, to take up their history and ties to slavery. This was in in 2003, which predated my hire, Mm. actually. First among all the IVs? No. Or first First of all the uh, colleges and universities. Wow. And it was, to my understanding, uh, I was actually just sort of moving down to Rhode Island. So this was playing out 
on the national stage in higher ed sector, but also locally, right? Because Brown's in Providence. I was just moving down to Rhode Island. It was getting a lot of attention that she was going to take this up and address it. And so the university spent two years through you know, listening sessions and talking sessions and alumni were engaged and faculty and students, all segments of the institution she brought into this process or the the, the committee mm-hmm. pulled together. And an extensive report was written. So out of that report, which was called Slavery and Justice, um, there were several recommendations that were made. And one of those recommendations was that a dedicated office be created around public education. So Brown's Hmm. major investment that they were making in the community. And so they created this office. They actually put it in the education department, which was Hmm. very interesting. But there was a broken data lines directly to the president's office, as you can imagine. And so this all sort of got set up around 2006. Again, predates me. And so then they're off to the races. First director comes in, works for a while, uh, makes some headway. Of course, you could, as I understood it, sort of, he had a daunting task, right? Yeah. There was, you know, bridge this gap between Brown University and the public education system, uh, make things right kind of thing. And you can devise the plan to do that. There's lots of lights on him, lots of pressure just sort of get something done and get an easy win kind of thing. So he was there for a while, talented guy. I think he stayed for a year or so. And then a new, another new director comes, very talented, smart. She stays for about another year. And then by year three, the office is vacant. Wow. Wow. The office is vacant. And so I come in about year four into this role. Right. But I thought this is a serious challenge on anyone's hands, but in front of me, because I was listening to everything that they weren't saying during the interview. Right. Mm -hmm. So they were buttering me up and saying all of the good stuff. But I was saying to myself, I'm not hearing a lot about community voice in this process. I'm not hearing a lot about authentic engagement around Mm. the city of Providence and the residents of Providence, uh, historically or otherwise or currently, and the university. So these were the things that I was not hearing, and I took the job anyway, because I thought that that was what the office needed to rest itself on, Mm. right? So to your point, Caesar, so I was new, right? I um, had done a stint in higher ed years and years and years and years ago uh, before that, but didn't really understand the nuanced mechanics of how institutions work. But learn, I'm a a quick study. (laughs) But what I brought to it was my community development background. And what I also had going for me was the fact that this was a priority of the president. She made it known that this was something that was important to her. And so the campus and also the trustees, because it works both ways, 
right, who she reports to, the president also reports to, that this is important. And so when you come into roles like that, there are a couple of things that I think that practitioners should do. And I am, of course, an urban planner and I'm a practitioner, but anyone in that role, you are now a practitioner. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in some of the more recent research um, that I'm doing with a colleague of mine looking at historically black college presidents and how they engage and sort of shape and frame their institutions to engage in civic engagement, Mm -hmm. they actually operate much more as practitioners in the role of president as opposed to predominantly white institutions, which is a very interesting contrast. Yeah, Yeah, it's a very interesting contrast. So again, I say anyone in that role taking on the task of true public engagement, civic engagement in a large institution, college, hospital, really has to be practitioner-based, right, in their thinking. And they also have, and I say that, they also have to be committed to community voice, mm-hmm. right? And have a level of resiliency within them because they, you become the person then, your office, my office became the office that absorbed the shock. Mm. That was once I actually started to implement some of the change mm-hmm. around we need to engage the community, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because I often got the call, Holly knows, right? Or Holly can come. And I would say, well, I think we need to slow down a bit. And I think that we need to engage school principals. We need to engage the superintendent. We need to engage teachers. Right. We need to understand the local context of how public education works on the ground in order for this all to make sense. Mm-hmm. And there was, you, as you can imagine, lots of pushback around that. Some folks got it. Some folks didn't. But to your point, Cesar, I think that um, to drive the work, the practitioner has to be grounded in resiliency and community voice in order to, to make it work. And it's a really interesting concept that you have to have, you know, this idea that of a, being able to absorb the shock. Yeah. You know, that 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 is an important part of, you know, even we go back to this frame of these kind of six design, you know, mm-hmm. kinds of conversations. You can't build that if you don't have some place that's absorbing the shock. And that shock really comes from something we've talked about earlier in one of our other series about you know, the need for healing because there's so much trauma right. in Absolutely. the public engagement right. Pro- it's, right. system that right. that shock has to go somewhere. Right. It has to be taken on. Yeah. You need, right. like, the personal infrastructure to yeah. be able to handle a lot right. of the civic or constituent infrastructure that you're trying to build at right. the same time. That's exactly right. Yeah. When, when you were talking about being a having a practitioner mindset and doing your research um, with your colleague about, you know, HBCUs and mm-hmm. um, non-HBCUs and the differences in their presidential leadership styles. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just curious, like, what were some of the ways that you had to adopt this practitioner mindset? Like, what did resilience look like for you? Because it seems like you were there for a lot longer than, <laughs> than your predecessors. Year, right, right. Yeah, I so <laughs> how did you do that? Right. So I was in the role um, for six years. Actually, six going on seven years. And uh, the job that I had 
right before uh, my role at Brown was working at the state level in public education mm-hmm. um, for Rhode Island. So I had a strong context of how mm-hmm. the systems work in the state, uh-huh. right? Um, and not just for public education, but housing and community development mm-hmm. and sort of what conversations and, you know, what I would say, you know, one of the ways in which I describe sort of how things move uh, in Rhode Island uh, is sort of there's a pedestrian level of mm. conversation. <laughs> and then there is sort of this other level of conversation that's happening that actually makes systems go. Mm. And so you have to be very cognizant of what conversation are you having? Mm. Are you having the I got a guy? Which is actually a real com- uh, a real colloquialism it used in Rhode Island, right? I got a guy, yeah. <laughs> um, as opposed to sort of uh, a different conversation that folks are making connections with you and are able to sort of move the work, mm-hmm. right? So, so, so I came with a lot. I had a data pack like on my back, <laughs> right? But one of the things that I share often when I talk about the work that I did um, and actually maintain. I committed to in my first year that I would have absolutely no meetings in my office at Brown. Wow. Interesting. Every meeting wow, that I took. My hair is rising just hearing that. <laughs> every meeting that I took that was with, in my purview, mm-hmm. public education was at at the superintendent's office, was at a teacher's office, was at a principal's office, was at an executive director of a nonprofit's office. I also, that was the policy of my office. Mm-hmm. So wow. we would, and, and when I was, I was very intentional because I needed to shift the thinking, right? right? People in general not just in public education, but people in general, if you live in Rhode Island and if you work and live in Providence and you have a meeting with Brown, 99.9% of the time it's going to be at Brown. Right. Right? And that sends a message. Right. People are, that signals something right. to people. So I needed, to, I wanted to send a different signal, which was, we're going to publicly engage in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I committed that first year to not having any meetings on Brown's campus or at my office. And then I just instituted that as a policy. And the shift in response from the community at large in Providence went 180. Right. Wow. Right. A hundred and eighty. Here it is. We Mm -hmm. have a large, prestigious, elitist institution Mm -hmm. who says that they are want to invest in public education in the children of Providence, which is what the fund was called. And every meeting that we have, we always at Brown. We're always at Brown. We're always at Brown. So I just I said. That's, that's not the signal of we're engaging as um, what I call there has to be reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So that was how I took on 
the practitioner role mm. of embedding myself wow. in the community. You're saying that, you know, mm. these situations, there are patterns that have to be disrupted. Yeah. You know, because if you don't, you're going to be kind of like in the same place. You know, I was actually even thinking about these, about this notion of framing, because framing, framing doesn't just happen about in terms of the conversation you're having, mm-hmm. it is about what you have set up before that allows Absolutely. people to feel they can be part of. Absolutely. And so part <laughs> of this notion of saying, no, we're going to be in these communities is actually setting up the conditions mm-hmm. that allow people to step into a framing conversation because right. they're saying, okay, right. you've, you've, you've created a new space, right. a new territory, new rules. Right. You're showing respect and reciprocity. Right. Maybe we can enter in here more. I also think it's just so interesting because in a lot of the conversations that we have here talking about, you know, these six different styles of conversation and uh, ways of communicating. It's so interesting how a lot of, at least what I'm taking away from what you just said about this practitioner mindset was also a lot of how, a lot of what you're not saying. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that that goes unsaid that is really important in terms of signaling, like you pointed out. And I'm sure there are many other aspects of this as well. And Mm -hmm. I, when I see exactly when I see framing and ideating and selecting and all these different styles of conversation, I think of words. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think of the non-worded elements right. involved in conversations with the community. That's right. Yeah. The yeah. signals that are right. The signals that are sent. Right. And and both of you are absolutely right. I so so the the other piece of it, there was some shock that I had to absorb mm. immediately. Oh, I want to hear about this immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Story time. <laughs> because um, so a year or, or so prior to my arrival in the role, Brown had given $100,000 of Texas instrument calculators to, you know, every fifth grader got a calculator. TR-100? Yeah. Yeah, like that. They were giving those away everywhere. Everywhere. And so, and it, I mean, like I said, so I wasn't working at Brown, but I lived in Rhode Island, read the Providence Journal, was in the paper, you know, got lots of press around it. And to the average citizen, you say, oh, right, great, this is wonderful, right? Well, immediately, as soon as I got into the, the role, I heard from lots of different places that that was actually not a win on the public education side. Hmm. Right. So there was and that the university had in some ways also heard that, too. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was a lot of pressure on me as soon as I hit the roll to get it going. Like we need to make that go away and we need something else. Right. Mm -hmm. So here it is. I'm sitting here and I'm going. Okay, we have to slow down. So the practice that I just told you about where I'm not holding meetings, that's going to be policy Mm. of my office on campus, I also then had to manage the expectations of the president's office, Mm. who I reported to, and others around campus who were feeling this heat to, Mm. to sort of rectify what had been done. And so I then needed to have a set of meetings and form a body on campus that met on a regular basis to talk about sort of the principles around this practice that they were seeing me Mm. implement. 
So using words like reciprocity, right? Words like dignity and humanity, things that I think that we actually need to revisit as we talk about democracy and how we get it to fully function again. I don't think that we can let it go unsaid anymore. I think we or assume that people understand that what dignity means and how you honor that. So in doing a series of meetings and um, in higher education fashion, uh, a series of emails and memos and things of that nature, I was absorbing that shock, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But like I said, literally, I want to say a year later, mm-hmm. the, the change that all of the university felt mm-hmm. by that practice, not just my office, the entire university wow. benefited from the office that had been charged with civic engagement, changing, tweaking a practice, the entire institution that benefited from that, right? And so it started to pay off. Mm. This is actually a a beautiful example of this notion of design for the margins, right? Mm -hmm. Because you said, I'm I'm gonna work, I'm gonna, build our practice of how we connect with the community in a very different way. We're going to design it so it works for them. Right. And then the benefit right. is much greater than for them. That's right. It expands to a much larger audience That's right. in that way. Thank wow, you so thank much. You. Yeah, no, absolutely. This has been great. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks, great team. Thanks so much for listening to Spotlight Series here at The Move. And join us in mid-July when we start our second series We're a production of the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT with support from MIT's Office of Open Learning. Our sound is produced by Dave Lashansky, our content by Julia Cubrera and Misael Galdamez. I'm Ayushi Roy. I'm Susan McDowell. And you can find us online at themove.mit.edu. And on our Medium site at medium.com forward slash themovemit, as well as our Twitter and Facebook. Thanks so much. Goodbye.